These dogs need somewhere to go and they're relying upon the leadership that's given by an individual. So if you're leaving your house for the first time and you've never walked around your neighborhood, that dog is going to feel a bit overwhelmed as to they said left, but then they said right. And I don't really understand, you know, so it can really harm the, the human animal bond. You're both living beings. You have a partnership, but it does require effort. From the Outreach Department at the Texas School for the Blind and Visually Impaired, this is A Sense of Texas. Here's your host, Emily Coleman. Welcome to A Sense of Texas. I'm Emily Coleman. I've worked with our guest, Jake Cook, extensively when I was in Washington State. We presented on occasion together, me from the perspective of the parent of a child who was blind, and Jake from the perspective of an individual who is blind himself. When I moved to Texas, I was excited to still run into him at conferences and on our campus as he worked on behalf of Guide Dogs for the Blind. To share more about Guide Dogs and their role in his life and the lives of others, we invited him to join us. I got started in the field of public relations working for my parents. They give guided tours of Hell's Canyon by jet boat. And when you work in a family business, you you get all kinds of experiences kind of growing up in that. But definitely working with customers, customer service, giving a good tour, making people feel comfortable and and engaging them with what's around them. It's kind of my, my foundation. What were some of the things you did working for them as a kid growing up? Oh my gosh, where to begin? A little bit of everything, you know, anything from working in the office, taking reservations, some work in the heavy maintenance operation. Jet boats are um, pretty complicated machines and always need to be in in tip-top shape. So working with my father, who's both the owner and also a diesel mechanic. And then in high school and college, I ran our off-grid river lodge. It's 70 miles into Hell's Canyon. It's completely remote, hospitality meal prep, and then some more unique things like resource management. Uh, We generated our own power. We um, filtered our own water. So like managing all that as as a high schooler was quite an undertaking and something that my father just kind of said, I'm going to show you how to do it because I need you to help me. And then we're going to, you're going to, you're going to rock this thing. So (laughs) working in your family business, how did your mobility instructor support any of that? Did you just get mobility at school? So I did get mobility through the school district. It was a little bit spotty at times, kind of depending on who was able to serve Southeast Washington State. It's a pretty rural area of the state, as as you well know. Oftentimes, the routine would look like this. It would meet for about an hour and a half once a month with an O&M instructor. And the goal was really to teach what we might call survival skills, you know, being able to independently cross streets safely, work on functional cane technique, planning routes, things like that. But it was difficult living in a rural community uh, because I didn't have access to you know places to go. My parents lived in the country. They ran this jet boat tour service, which had a you know remote uh, wilderness camp that I ran. And so O and M was definitely not done and uh, taught in the more the traditional sense. Uh, my parents are very supportive of me integrating into society like any other kid. So they were supportive of me having orientation and mobility training, but also supportive in letting me be creative. So that meant using a combination of vision, 
and tactile skills to remain oriented and organized, having systems in place. If I was doing a task. When you were a kid, did you always know that you might want a guide dog or was that something you didn't think about until you were older? I was actually afraid of learning orientation and mobility. I was pretty resistant to it in the early days, believe it or not. Now, I, I mean, I've, I've traveled to Europe by myself. I travel regularly for both business and pleasure. I know my way around at least a dozen airports in the country. <laughs> so to go from being afraid of it to what I am today is quite quite a change. And at first it was just like, oh, this is just another lesson in school. Like, why do I have to do this? I'll just get driven everywhere. Because when you live in a rural area, that's kind of, as a kid, that's kind of what you you have available to you. You either ride the school bus or you get driven around. At least in my case, that that was the the scenario. We didn't live in town where there was, you know, sidewalks and things. Later on, when I was a young adult, I really started to see the value of orientation and mobility. I left home at age 18, I moved to Vancouver, Washington and participated in the Learning Independence for Today and Tomorrow program. And that was a great place for me to spread my wings. And it also taught me the value of good mobility skills. But it also let me explore what types of mobility might be the best for me. Do I continue to use my limited amount of vision? Do I use a white cane? Should I use a guide dog? Combination of? That's when I started thinking about guide dog mobility. I knew several people that had had guide dogs. I grew up around animals and loved animals. I definitely value the human-animal bond. And that's what sort of started me on my my quest to explore the guide dog lifestyle. It's interesting to, to reflect back on that. I just think like a lot of kids who are visually impaired, there's certainly a level of self-trust that you have to build up. You know, you look to your parents for leadership and guidance or, or maybe another guardian or somebody who's inspirational to you. But when you start to learn O&M and you learn how to travel independently, all of a sudden, all of that leadership land squarely on your shoulders and i think that can be a really interesting dynamic to to work through and especially you know someone like me i mean i was kind of a shy kid believe it or not now i can't stop talking but (laughs) (laughs) yeah i have not known you to be shy either so it's a tough sell (laughs) yeah i came out it came out of that shell pretty quickly (laughs) as an adult but yeah. Can you talk a little bit about the training required when you get a guide dog and some of the mobility skills that you need in advance? Absolutely. Now, different guide dog schools are going to have a little bit of a uh, different admissions process. Most, if not all of them, agree that orientation and mobility, though, is sort of the core skill set to being successful with a guide dog. Guide Dogs for the Blind views orientation and mobility training as a person who has all of the fundamentals of O&M. If someone can rock an awesome two-point touch, that's great, or tap and drag, super cool. What we're really looking at, though, is can a person assess traffic and cross streets safely and consistently, whether it's a four-way stop or a four-way intersection? Can a person plan and execute a route or several routes? Are they familiar with their neighborhood and how things are laid out, streets and and things of that nature. Can a person remain what we call dynamically oriented along the route? So what that means is as you're going from point A to point B, you're able to to tell yourself or tell somebody who might ask where you are on that route. Uh, for example, you know, I'm heading north on 6th Street and I'm approaching Main, uh, that sort of thing. And then if possible, the non-tactile skills can be really helpful. They're more icing on the cake, but they, they definitely can play a huge role in in 
someone being successful with a guide dog. And those are, for example, using things like auditory cues to remain oriented, using the sound of space to kind of tell you what kind of an environment are you in? Are you approaching a large open space? Or are you, when you're walking down a hallway, can you determine by sound uh, or maybe pressure where an open door might be? Because one thing that a guide dog can't do is they're not very good at shorelining. <laughs> <laughs> They're good at suggestions, though. So if you give the dog a suggestive directional command, such as Juno left or Juno right, the dog will find the first available turn. So if there's a set of doors, say, in a, a, a hallway, um, and you're looking for the third door on the left, the dog might find the first door, then they might find the second door, they might find the third door. Or if you're able to use some of those non-tactile skills, those auditory skills, to determine, yep, I can hear... When I'm passing an open door, I know I need to go a couple more paces down the hallway to find what I'm looking for. Another skill that's super helpful is time distance estimation. Again, determining it takes me 30 seconds to walk half a block, or it takes me from when I enter this hallway to find my classroom, it takes me 10 seconds to find that roughly in, in that kind of ballpark. So that's kind of what we at Guide Dog Show Divine look for in orientation and mobility training. Now, if that takes somebody 10 hours or 100 hours, that doesn't matter to us. It just matters that they have those skills in place to be eligible for, for yeah. our program. We also do have something called the Orientation and Mobility Immersion Program. It bridges the skills gap between what somebody has and what they need to be successful with a guide dog. We understand there's a huge shortage in the country for orientation and mobility services. And as a guide dog school, we don't believe that we can require someone to have O&M training, but then not provide any resource for them for, for somebody to get that O&M training. And that's what the O&M immersion program really does. It's 25 hours of instruction and it bridges the gap between someone who might have, say, just a few hours of instruction, maybe they've been self-taught, used YouTube videos, that sort of thing, and, and to give them the skills necessary to be successful with a guide dog. So our admissions criteria is orientation and mobility training, of course, and then a minimum of three regularly traveled destination routes. So these are independently traveled routes that a person might take, whether it's to school, to work, friend's house, church, grocery store. Really doesn't matter to us. It's just um, that the person is out traveling around. The route should include around a half mile of walking, even if that's, you know, the route could be walk to the, you know, a quarter mile to the bus stop, get on the bus, ride the bus downtown, get off, walk a quarter mile to, to work. That That's a perfectly acceptable route. I think some people, sometimes they don't realize, you know, that you have to know how to travel independently. Your dog is not going to, you know, do all the work for you. And also you need somewhere to go because these are working dogs. So it doesn't make sense for them to just lounge around all day. <laughs> exactly. And you bring up a really good point in saying that sometimes when I'm speaking to potential applicants, you know, people will tell me, well, if I had a guide dog, then I would leave my house, then I would travel. And, and that is a certainly an, an understandable conclusion to come to. And I, I can certainly empathize with, with what people are saying there. But as you said, these dogs need somewhere to go and they're relying upon the leadership that's given by an individual mm. to direct them forward, left and right. So if you're leaving your house for the first time, and you've never walked around your neighborhood and now you're working a brand new guide dog, that dog is going to feel a bit overwhelmed as to, I don't, yeah. they said left, but... Then they said, right, and I don't really understand, you know, so it can really harm the, the human-animal bond. 
And that's why hmm. having those skills is so important. How long is their training where you work directly with the dog before you go home? So once someone has been approved for training, we have two options. We have a two-week residential style training program. And then we also have an in-home training program. So that's where we would bring the dog to a client and spend between 10 to 14 days in somebody's home area working with them. And this program is available to people who, for whatever reason, cannot travel to either of our two campuses in Oregon or California. Uh, maybe they're a single parent, maybe they have health challenges that prevent them from travel. Well, both programs really focus on teaching a client how to handle their dog in a variety of situations. We take careful note of the person's environment. Someone who lives in a big city, say like you know New York, Chicago, Dallas, is going to have a different set of needs than someone who lives in a small town. Finding that balance and helping people become exposed to the different scenarios that are unique to them is what we focus on. We have a two to one client to instructor ratio, so it's highly customizable small class sizes. We take six clients at a time. So we have a lot of time to, to do freelance type work and help people customize their specific training needs. How do you all fund your dogs and their placements? So Guide Dogs for the Blind is a nonprofit organization. We receive no government funding and are privately funded by individuals and corporations. We do provide all of our services free of charge to our clients. We serve clients in all the 50 states and Canada. The only thing that a a client would be responsible for is the dog's food, um, mm -hmm. toys, other accessories. We even have a veterinary financial assistance program on an as-needed basis for those folks that might need it. Because we understand that there are unfortunately people who are blind or visually impaired that are not employed or are underemployed. I believe the NFB estimates that figure to be around 70%. We don't want finances to be a barrier to somebody choosing the mobility aid that best fits their needs. I know these dogs aren't cheap to train and place, so I'm glad that there's some insurance too for them on the other side. That's that's probably super helpful. Yeah, we, we want people to feel confident uh, in working with these dogs. We, we never want someone to be in a situation where, you know, their dog needs medical care and they can't give their dog the appropriate medical care because maybe they're on a fixed income, finances are tight, maybe they're a college student, et cetera, et cetera. We want to make sure that we're able to still support the individual and their dog because it gives both both parties peace of mind. What are some of the other challenges that people face when they get a guide dog for the first time? Getting a guide dog is certainly a serious decision. From a mobility aspect, the way that you travel changes a little bit. You have reduced tactile feedback. You still get some through the harness mm -hmm. handle uh, that you hold in your hand and underfoot, but you're not relying solely on the information that's gathered through a cane tip. Part of the dog's job is to take some initiative on your behalf. So if they see an obstacle, they're going to lead you around it. Um, and even if you can physically see that obstacle or see another way around the obstacle, it's important to let the dog do their job. It's a shared partnership. You and the dog are working together. You're both living beings. You're both interpreting the world in a little bit different way but if we put those two things together, you have a partnership, but it does require effort. And I was sitting in an airport a few months back listening to a book. I clearly had my headphones on, was not engaging with anybody. And, and this person came up and tapped me on the shoulder, took my headphones off, and they said, can you tell me what your dog's name is? And that's all they wanted to know. And I, I told <laughs> her, my dog's name is Forley. And they said, 
thank you. And they walked away. <laughs> so <laughs> the increased attention can be maybe a little bit um, challenging, might be a little bit overwhelming for some people. And it's certainly something to think about. I know there was some controversy in years past about uh, rideshare companies not allowing guide dogs in their cars. Did you have any trouble with that? I've been denied once to my face. I've had several other instances where I heard a car drive by and then magically got a notification on my phone <laughs> that said my ride had been canceled. Wow. It does happen regularly to people Unfortunately, mm. there are some advocacy groups that are working with both uh, Lyft and Uber to try and, and remedy the situation. Drivers are well educated. In fact, there's like a sort of terms and conditions screen that will pop up on their phone. I think it's every three months now. And they, they actually have to read through that thing and click, you know, yes, I agree that I will transport, you know, service mm. animals. It's still a challenge because a lot of drivers believe that their car is their personal property. And though they are right, what they don't realize is that when you take money in exchange for a service, you are now operating commercially as a commercial entity, and therefore you're subject to all the rules and regulations of, of any other business. So you mentioned that you've had a few different guide dogs. How long do they typically work, and what's it like when you have to transition to a new one? Guide dog, um, on average, works about seven to nine years. We place our dogs with, with people at about 21 months of age. So from that point on, you know, plus seven to nine years, sometimes dogs retire early for a variety of reasons. You know, they might uh, just like someone maybe getting into a career and deciding, hey, maybe this career isn't right for me and, and leaving after a few years. Dogs can do the same thing. So there's a variety of reasons why a dog might retire early. No matter when the dog retires, it's challenging. There, there's a There's a transition period between retiring a guide dog and getting another guide dog it's it's definitely not an, an an objective thing these these dogs are living breathing creatures you form long-lasting relationships with them they become like a familial bond it's not like say you know changing a light bulb or whatever right for some people they really benefit from having a dog with them and so you know to them the most comforting thing to do is to retire the dog and have applied in such a way that they can retire the dog on one day and the next day they're in class getting their next dog. Um, while other people might choose to, to sort of have some time in between to kind of, you know, process what's going on, reflect on, on their life with their guide dog. Guide dog handlers at our school, at Guide Dog Show Blind, they're welcome to keep their dogs as pets if they'd like, or we can place the dog for them in a home. But people have different ways of processing this emotional transition from one guide dog to another. We do have a staff member with a counseling background and she's great for helping people you know, mm -hmm. process this and, and problem solve and work their way through the transition. Speaking from personal experience, it's definitely helpful to have somebody you can talk to who's been through it, but also, you know, has experience with mental health and can help you, you know, come up with some some coping mechanisms. Dogs retire and pass away for all kinds of different reasons. And we want to make sure that people feel supported and, and, and comfortable or as comfortable as possible with that scenario because it will happen. It's inevitable, unfortunately. What advice do you give young adults thinking a guide dog may be right for them? Value your orientation and mobility training. While it may seem <laughs> repetitive right now, it really does help you down the road. I was young once and I, I didn't value it or I thought it was just another school lesson, but it was one of the most important lessons 
in, in middle school and high school that I've ever had because it allows you the freedom to choose to travel or not to travel. So by having those skills, you can choose to go where you want, when you want, and you can also choose to travel how you want. And that's what is really fantastic. So that's one piece of advice. I would say, if you're thinking about a guide dog, ask questions. There's no such thing as a dumb question. I'm happy to answer any questions that individuals might have. Our admissions department is is ready and happy to answer any, any questions. So even if you just want to talk through the process, when is the right time for me to apply for a guide dog? Here's my individual situation. I think it's okay to reach out and, and start talking about it. Talk to your parents. What do your parents think about it? That's another great support network. Or maybe teachers in school. Uh, maybe maybe a group of you, you know, you, you and your support network get on the phone with a guide dog school or two and, and ask some some questions on the subject. Well, I think you just made best friends with every mobility instructor teaching high school kids <laughs> right now. <laughs> They're all going to love that piece of advice. Yeah, well, and, and to the orientation and mobility specialists, I want to say that, you know, guide dogs for the blind and, and the guide dog side of the field, we are really trying to make a conscious effort to um, support what you are doing. We're all in this together and we have several tools and resources on our website, guidedogs.com. If you click on the orientation and mobility resources tab, we've got several instructional videos that will help you if you're working with somebody who's interested in having a guide dog, um, sort of resource videos um, to help you sort of build a plan of, of instruction. We also have a guide dog readiness checklist. So we've broken down the guide dog lifestyle into its nine component parts. And if you need a self-discovery curriculum, whether you're an O&M instructor, a TVI, or other professional, that is a great checklist to use. You know, maybe you're working with parents or students, or you want to build that self-discovery curriculum. I would recommend those resources to you. Do you know an infant or toddler in Texas who may have a vision problem? They may qualify for free services. Support from a teacher of students with visual impairment may increase a child's success in school and life. Call 817-740-7530 to find out more. That's 817-740-7530. Be sure to check out the resources Jake mentioned in our episode description. Jake's work at TSBVI with students has been coordinated by one of our very own Certified Orientation and Mobility Specialists, Lisa Kalachi. Today, she's sharing her on-campus guide dog knowledge and expertise. It would be wonderful to have a dog guide if I were totally blind or, you know, had low vision. I understand if you have too much vision, it's best not to have one because you might be telling the dog where to go rather than listening to the dog. But yes, I think for those that would like one and that are high-level travelers, I think it would be really a wonderful thing. They come out in advance, you know, the dog guide school comes out when the student's interviewing, you know, filling out the application and they'll look at the student to see how do they do, you know, how much vision do they have. And it's my understanding some schools will blindfold them or do occluders during the training with the dog so they can get used to listening to the dog rather than them leading the dog. Because otherwise you're going to ruin the dog, He'll, you know, you'll screw up their training and 
they might not work properly when they need to. Another good point that I guess I'd like to add is with so many hybrid and electric cars, a dog guide would be great because if you told the dog, okay, it's time to cross the street and the dog didn't go because they're using intelligent disobedience, you know, you might have a hybrid coming by or you might have an electric car that you didn't hear and that might really save you. I had one at TSB that had a dog guide about three years ago. He was our first student in many, many years that was accepted to come on campus, you know, and get a dog guide. The summer before, he went to a dog guide camp, and that really gave him a feeling for what it would be like. And I highly recommend people do that if they're questioning if they would like one. It was a great experience for him. And then the next year, he got a dog guide and came to school. And that was a very um, educational experience for the whole campus. They would have to be a high-level traveler. You know, they'd have to have good cane skills, good orientation skills, street crossing skills, and so on and so forth. They would also have to, you know, have good auditory processing. Since they're not going to have the cane on the ground, they're going to rely on the auditory feedback instead. And they have to be responsible. Like, I had one student last year, or maybe it was there before, who he kind of wanted one, but his mom really wanted him to have one. But he wasn't to that level of maturity to where he would take care of feeding it and watering it and, you know, taking it out to go to the bathroom and so on. I felt that he just wasn't ready. And he, plus, he did not have the mobility skills for it. But even if he did, just that maturity level wasn't there yet. He did go visit a dog guide school and went for a week of training last year. But they actually didn't ever have him walk with a dog because they saw the same thing I saw. I think students as well as families have misconceptions that they think the dog guide is going to solve all the students' mobility challenges. So I think they very often think that the dog is going to show them a route, not the student's going to show the dog the route as well as when to cross the street. The dog's gonna tell them when to cross the street. So I do think there's that misconception. And I do think a lot of them don't realize what good mobility skills you have to have in order to get one. Sometimes it's a motivation. You know, if they do want a dog guide and their skills aren't quite up to par, but you could see, well, in the future they might be. It can be a real motivation for that student to work really hard in O&M, which is great. I think so that they know it's a possibility that it's an option for some of them. And even if they themselves are not ever going to have a dog guide, to be aware that other people that are visually impaired do have dog guides and what's the purpose of a dog guide. You know, you need to realize it's a working dog and it's not a pet. Many students love animals and especially dogs which is why a guide dog can be a good fit later in their lives. It's important to remember these working dogs are much more than a pet, but the key to transportation, employment, and ultimately, independence. From the TSBVI Outreach Department and A Sense of Texas, I'm Emily Coleman. See you next time.
This has been a presentation of the Texas School for the Blind and Visually Impaired Outreach Department. If you have any questions or suggestions for topics to cover in future episodes, please contact us at podcast at tsbvi.edu. Thank you.